God, uh, thank you for the CMU workshop and for all the hearts that uh, make up this community that gets together every year just to talk about how we can do a better job being disciples so that we can make a greater impact on the world. Uh, Father, it's your heart to reach people. It's your heart to uh, connect us with people. Uh, you seek and save the lost. And you didn't just create us and throw us into this world without uh, giving us evidence and instruction. You gave us the scriptures, God. And more and more, it's becoming easy to be skeptical of what's written in the Bible because of this onslaught of messages and just the, the, perva the pervasiveness of, of the culture we live in and, and how it's turned against you. And so, Father, I just pray that as we... Uh, think about how we can make a greater impact on the world that we'll understand that Father, it is intellectually possible and feasible and even it makes a lot of sense to have faith in you. Faith isn't blind, God. It's, it's uh, We'd have to be blind not to see you. And so I just pray as we talk about that this morning that, uh, that our hearts will be open and that ultimately we'll be able to make a greater impact because of this class. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. How many of you guys have ever been skeptical of the existence of God? Raise your hand. Got myself among that, okay? Uh, how many of you maybe came to a belief that God is real, but then you couldn't really wrap your mind around this Bible thing being from him. Anybody in that boat? Okay. Uh, I know for me, for a long time, I grew up in a religious household. Uh, I grew up learning the Bible stories. I grew up going to Bible classes as a kid. My dad was a preacher. Uh, my mom was a church secretary, and so I had that religious experience growing up. Uh, but then life happened to me, and uh, I, as a teenager, became a skeptic uh, because I couldn't believe that all the stuff that I read about in the scriptures was for real. Uh, I could not believe that people rose from the dead. I could not believe that there was a God of heaven that supposedly loved us and then gave us this book with all these instructions in it that didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't believe that there was a global flood. I couldn't believe a lot of the stuff that's just sort of accepted. And a lot of that was I couldn't believe the Bible was for real. And it took me having some bad things happen in my life before I turned and, and kind of started to investigate things. Uh, and I'm not going to tell my whole story because that's not what this class is about. But just to make a long story short, I got into uh, looking into the scriptures and looking at the evidences that we have for why we can believe the Bible. And what I found was pretty overwhelming. And so what I want to do for you guys in this class is just share some things that I've learned over the years that have uh, not only helped me be led to faith initially, even after I was led to faith, have built my faith up to the point now where I really, guys, I, I can honestly look at you and without any shred of dishonesty tell you I have no doubt that God is real. And I have no doubt that the Bible is his word. And I have no doubt that Jesus is his son. And that he wants a relationship with you. And that he wants to use you to make this world a better place. I have no doubt that he's coming back someday. And I have no doubt that we're all going to have to stand before him and give an account of our life. And I have no doubt that I'm going to see a lot of you in eternity with me and all my friends who love Jesus. But guys, 
I used to doubt a lot. And did you know doubt's not bad? Doubt can be okay. Have you ever heard that truth can stand up to the hardest questions if it's really true? So it's okay to ask questions? You think that through. And Jesus says if you're a truth seeker, guess where you're going to be led? Jesus says if you really seek the truth, you're going to be led. I want to give you this morning four ways that the Bible is unique. And then we're going to get into talking about some prophecies uh, that are some of my favorites. And I've got a handout that I want to pass out. We're not going to have enough of these, so you might want to take one and pass. Here, could a couple of you guys pass me around? We're going to look at those in a second. You might want to take one and uh, look on it with your neighbor. And I will, uh, I'll send out a link for the electronic copy of that so everybody can have one. Uh, if not paper, I know you guys don't like paper anyway, you use phones, right? Um, four ways the Bible is unique in like other books, if you want to take a note. Here you go. First of all, the Bible is unique in history and circulation. Number one, the Bible is unique in history and circulation. Does anybody remember what happened in 1455? All of you, right? Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. And you may think that's not a big deal, but how many of you guys have a cell phone? You got a cell phone? You want to know why you have a cell phone? Because Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1455. When Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1455, it was the first time we could mass distribute information the way you do with books. You want to know why he invented the printing press in 1455? Anybody? 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 It was not the Bible. That was the only reason that he invented the printing press in 1455. It was to get the Bible into the hands of the common man. Did you know that since the first Bible was printed in 1455, it has been the best-selling book of all time? There have been, uh, some estimates say, over 2.5 billion copies of the Bible printed since 1455. In fact, there is no book in history that even comes close to rivaling the distribution and dissemination of the Christian Bible. The Bible has been translated into 2,500 languages. Currently, there are over 500 languages that it's being translated into. That's being worked on right now. We've got uh, people that are going to indigenous people groups that do not have an alphabet. All they have is a language. And so we have missionaries going and working with these people to help them craft an alphabet and teach them to write and help them become literate so that we can then copy the Bible into their language and give it to them so that they can read the scriptures. There's no other book that's, that's being done with. Just the scriptures. In fact, uh, the scriptures are being distributed. I think 20 million a year uh, is about the number of copies being sold. One year, the Geneva Bible Society gave away uh, 430 million copies just in one year. There is nothing in history that comes close to rivaling the distribution and dissemination of the Christian scriptures. It is literally everywhere, and where it is not, there are people and groups and organizations actively working to make it possible for it to be there. There's nothing else like it in that sense. Additionally, the Bible is unique in authorship and continuity. The, the Bible is unique in authorship and continuity. The Bible is composed of 66 books. It's not simply a book. It is a book of books. It has 
over 40 different authors that wrote in three different languages on three different continents over the course of about 2,500 years. And it would be one thing for uh, them to simply address one topic and agree, but the thing is, there's that much time between the writing of these books, there is a social strata that's represented among the authors where you have a king and a homeless guy, a shepherd and a warrior. You have all these different kinds of people not just writing on one topic, but writing on multiple different topics, but then you have a continuous message all the way through. This is another thing that's crazy about the Bible, the continuity that's there. And I, I challenge you to take just one controversial topic, throw out like the topic of abortion. And let me take 40 of you guys from this room who aren't even all that different. You live in the same time period. You roughly come from the same social strata. You live in the same country, in the same culture. I will take 40 of you and I will sit you in a room, I'll give you the topic of abortion and ask each of you blindly to write an essay and then come out and we'll see if all of you agree. You think you're all gonna agree? Okay? You have the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, written over thousands of years by all kinds of different people from all kinds of different places and all kinds of different cultures, and yet they address hundreds of controversial topics, and all of them come out saying the same stuff. Guys, how does that happen? How does that happen? Yes, sir. Design. Design, okay, yeah. There is a power that is over the creation of the scriptures. There is a God who, have you guys ever heard the term divine inspiration? Okay, you know that scripture in 2 Timothy where it says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for correcting, teaching, correcting, rebuking, and turning righteousness? That word God-breathed means that God was in the process of the writing of the scriptures. He worked through these men to... Uh, to help write this book, it says in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This just says the Bible authors, guys, didn't speak on their own. And you say, well, anybody can come write a, write a passage of the Bible, right? Okay. Every single one of those biblical authors that I just mentioned, uh, 42 of them, or 43 of them, however many were there were, were not able only to proclaim authority from God, they were also able to demonstrate it. And so every single person in the Bible that wrote a book of the Bible was uh, able to do miracles, or they were able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. And that's pretty convincing. And I live in San Francisco, as Mackie uh, mentioned in his lesson, you go out on the streets in San Francisco and you'll hear people proclaiming to be from God. You'll hear people proclaiming to have this divine revelation. There's all kinds of crazy religions and stuff uh, that I saw when I lived out there for a few years. And uh, you want to know why I didn't believe any of those? None of those people were raising people from the dead. None of those people were making the blind see. None of those people were making the deaf hear. None of those people were predicting the future with 100% accuracy. But if somebody came along to me and said, Hey, Nico, I'm from the Lord. I got a message from you. 
and then made some dude rise from the dead? Or predicted something that there's no way they could have known that, and then they do it multiple times? I might, I might give them a listening ear. Well, that's what the scriptures are, guys. And so part of the reason you can trust it is because the authors were able to show we really are from the Lord. This isn't fake. We're from God. And if you look at the story, guys, I've got a chart, uh, I think on, uh, on that handout that I sent out, and I've got it on the PowerPoint up here for you visual learners. The Bible is a story cohesively told in three acts. It starts in Act 1 with the garden. Uh, you have the fall of mankind. This is where sin entered the world. This morning I was on my way here, and I was driving behind a car, and a five-year-old flipped me off. <laughs> I saw, saw their little finger go up over the back seat. And I was like, ah, look at that. And so I kept driving, and then I saw a little finger going up over the back seat to all the cars going by, and I was like, that's the fall of mankind right there. That's what I was thinking in my mind. I'm like, that's sin. Sin entered the world that led to that little five-year-old flipping the bird at all the cars driving by. All sin in the world goes back to this getting messed up, because when God created the, the man and the woman, there was no sin in the world. But then it enters the world through Adam and Eve. And then the rest of the story of the Bible, the rest of these 66 books written over the course of 2,500 years, tell the story of how God worked in history through people to fix what was messed up up here. And you want to know who the main character is and why he's the main character in the scriptures? There's a reason Jesus' name is so big right here, because the whole Bible is the story of how God works through Jesus Christ to make the world right. And the whole Bible is the story, as it pertains to us, how we, as the church, are partnering with the resurrected Christ, who's in heaven with all the power of God, to make the world a better place. We're leading back. From here where everything got messed up, down to here where everything is going to be restored. And the arc of the Bible starts with two people in a garden. It ends with multitudes in the city. Two people in a garden, right with God, harmony with everything. It ends with multitudes in a city, right with God, and harmony with everything. There is a logical arc to the whole thing. And to me, as a skeptic, guys... When I look into this, and I see this, and I see there's actually a cohesiveness here. This isn't just a mix of stuff that just kind of throw it into the wall and see what sticks. No, there is a logic and a design to the story of Scripture through the whole thing. That's a faith builder to me. You also can look at this cohesive story in terms of covenants. Uh, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is also on a slide, and I've got it on the handout for you. But the Adamic Covenant, uh, the Noahic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant, Land Covenant. Again, this is just another way of saying, um, with some scripture reference here, what I just mentioned on that slide. There is a story. There is an arc. There is a, there is a cohesiveness that's present here that can only be possible if God were involved. When you consider, and some might say, well, I hear what you're saying, I understand that, but isn't it possible that the Bible is cohesive because editors went back and edited it to make it look like it fit together? Has anybody ever thought that? Has anybody ever thought that the Bible is rewritten and that we can't trust it because it's very old? Anybody? Don't be afraid. Okay, because I'm going to blow that out of the water. 
Um, I'm not, the evidence is. And this is overwhelming, okay? If you look on that handout that I gave you, and I don't actually have a copy of it up here, so. Um, but it's unique in transmission and survival. Uh, just so you know, guys, we don't have any original copies of the Bible. Why? Because they were written on paper. And paper, papyrus, or vellum, it, it decays over time. And we especially don't have any copies of the Old Testament scriptures because there were some specific sects of Jews, the Masoretes uh, for a time, and then the Talmud, two different uh, people, uh, groups of uh, Jewish people that were in charge of the scriptures. It was kind of their charge to take care of the Bible. What they would do, uh, whenever the scriptures would get old, the scrolls, and it would fade, they, they took the word of God so seriously, when the scriptures would fade, they would copy and make a new one, but then they would burn the old ones. So that we actually don't have a whole lot of copies of ancient Old Testaments because they got burned. And they had all these other rituals and ceremonies they would go through with the copying, which I won't get into, but the, the seriousness which they took the Word of God was crazy compared to how flippantly you and I could treat it in our culture. Um, but the, the evidence that's there, look on that handout that you have. How many of you guys have taken history classes in college? Okay, if you have ever taken a world history class uh, and you've had a professor teach out of a world history textbook and then tell you you can't trust the Bible, they are the biggest hypocrite on earth. Because the way scholars, serious scholars, judge what is called the historicity of any old document is through three criteria. Number one, the number of manuscripts that are available. Number two, the time interval between the date of the original writing and the composition of the copy. And number three, the quality of the manuscript. That just means, can you read it? Those are the three primary criteria that we judge manuscripts by. And so, if you read about Socrates, we have um, just a few copies of Plato's work that tell us about Socrates, the, the ancient Greek philosopher. But if you've studied about him, if you read that he uh, died by drinking hemlock, he committed suicide, that comes from one of these copies of Plato's work. And the thing is, when Plato wrote that work, it may have been you know, around 427 to 347 BC is when he wrote his earliest stuff. The earliest copy we have then is from 900 AD. You guys see on the chart, that's 1,200 years that exists between the oldest manuscript we have and when it was actually written. So who's to say if there's a 1,200-year gap between when something was written and then the earliest copy we have that somebody didn't come and change Plato's writing. We don't know. Because the oldest copy we have is 1,200 years removed. Did Socrates kill himself by drinking hemlock? Maybe. The best source we have, which isn't the greatest, is Plato. Can you guys you understand what I'm saying? And there's a lot of stuff that will be in your world history textbooks based on documents from history that are far removed, manuscripts, copies that are far removed from the original writing of the, when it actually happened. But, but we will go and listen to a college professor 
tell us this is historical fact. This is undisputed historical fact. And then that same professor will turn around and say, but you can't trust the Bible because it's been rewritten. And that is the height of foolishness and dishonesty. You want to know why intellectuals don't want to embrace the Bible? Because it makes demands on their life. And they can't be their own God anymore. So you can do some crazy intellectual kung fu to make the facts go away where you can then be your own God and live life like you want to rather than saying this is true and I need to get right with God. It's a lot easier on one hand just to live however you want. But if you look at the evidence, guys, look on this chart. The New Testament was written between 80, 40, and 100. The earliest copy that we have so far, and we're still finding more, is a fragment of the book of John from 8125. John was written around 90 AD. How many years is that? 90 to 125. 35 years. Look on this chart. Is there anything else that comes close to that? Okay. Nothing. We have a book of the Bible, 35 years removed, a manuscript, a copy, 35 years removed from the original. And we found a, a copy of the book of Mark not too long ago, which scholars are still kicking it around to figure out it might be older than that. We might have a copy of the book of Mark from the first century. A fragment of it, not the whole thing. That's a, that was a big find within the last couple of years. It's going to take them some time to figure out uh, the dating of that. What we date manuscripts is different because we don't want to tear them off and carbon date them because you've got to destroy a copy or a piece of the manuscript in order to do that. So the way they do it's a little bit differently, but that's going to get published, and so we'll find out. But look at how many copies there are, too, guys. There's, if you include fragments, over 24,000 copies of the scripture compared to a lot of times, a handful of copies of something uh, over a thousand years removed that we'll put in a textbook. But the Bible is discriminated against by intellectuals and academics who don't want it to be true. And so they'll say flippant things like, it's been rewritten without really going investigating it. But I've known a lot of academics and a lot of very smart people who, when they have gotten into testing their criticisms of the scriptures, you want to know what happens to them when they're honestly seeking truth? What does Jesus say happens when you seek truth? You're led to him. So there's a lot of academics and intellectuals and smarty pants who get into seeking truth and they end up finding Jesus. Lastly, it's unique in Revelation and Confirmation. First, there's archaeological confirmation. Uh, to date, there hasn't been a single discovery to prove the Bible's account of history is untrue. There have been some that scholars have used to contest claims in the scriptures, but you want to know what happens most of the time? Something else or someone else comes along later and says, no, the Bible's right, you're wrong. That's happened a bunch. And uh, I'm not going to get into all of the different examples of that. There are some really good ones. If you're interested in archaeology, go buy a copy of the NIV Archaeological Study Bible. I think it's like 10 bucks on Kindle. Uh, or you can buy it uh, in a paper copy for a little bit more. That's actually a pretty interesting uh, Bible. I've got a copy of that. And it's got a lot of pictures and dig sites and uh, you know footnotes and stuff like that that you might be interested in. So go check it out if you're interested in that. So you got archaeological confirmation, but what I want to what I want to camp on is the prophetic confirmation. This is a huge faith builder. 
God sent many prophets to the people of Israel over the centuries who made some very bold claims about things that were going to unfold in the history of the world, and then those things came true. And these are verifiable things that we can look at from history. Uh, They're very, very convincing. And it says in Deuteronomy 18, 20-22, a prophet, this is uh, God's test for a prophet. Which, by the way, guys, prophecy in Scripture is not always telling the future. Most of the time, about 90% of the time, a prophet is just someone who speaks on behalf of God. And usually it's to call a group of people to repentance. But about 10% of that prophet's work, depending on who it is, it might be telling of things to come. And so when I talk about uh, prophetic confirmation, I am talking about future uh, telling. Uh, but, but most prophecy is not that, just so you know. Uh, but Deuteronomy 18, 20-22 says, A prophet who presumes, this is God speaking, A prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. So you didn't want to play around and act like you were a prophet if you weren't. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Here's what God says. Uh, by the way, have you guys ever heard somebody proclaim to know the end of the world and when it's going to happen? Or you get these crazies who want to sell books or sell tickets to a conference and they'll start predicting the end of the world. I've seen this over and over, um, and, and it won't stop. But what God says, and here's, here's the Old Testament. If you want to get Old Testament on some of these guys, here's, here's your passage of Scripture. Deuteronomy 18.22, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. By the way, if anybody ever predicts the end of the world, is it going to come true? No. Absolutely not. You can count on it not being that day because Jesus says only God knows when that's going to happen. So if somebody comes along and says they know when it's going to happen, it's not. Bank on it. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, biblical prophets, and they made a lot of prophecies, over 2,500 in the scriptures. About 2,000 of those roughly have come true. There's still another 500 or so that are still going to come. And so there's still a lot of prophecy that will be fulfilled. A lot of that uh, when Jesus comes back. Nearly all of those. Uh, but some of my favorite prophecies. If you want to get your Bible out, these aren't going to be on the PowerPoint. But look at Isaiah 2. These were faith builders for me. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Anytime you see the mountain of the Lord's temple, that's referring to Jerusalem. Zion, Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord, those are all Jerusalem references to the temple. Verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord in the temple of God, in the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Where did the church start? What chapter of the Bible is the inception of the church? Acts 2. What happened in Acts 2? 
They're in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Loud boom, big crowd. Peter preaches, 3,000 baptized. Where does the word of the Lord go out from? Jerusalem, right? To this day, Jerusalem is a preeminent spiritual place for you to go. There are people that go there. They hang out by the Temple Mount. They go uh, pray at the Wailing Wall. It is still a draw for Christians. There's a lot of people who follow Jesus who still want to make a trip to Jerusalem someday just to see where Jesus walked, right? Skip down to chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Who is Jesse? David's dad. Okay? We didn't talk about it, but in the covenants, there's a very, very important covenant known as the Davidic covenant. You guys know what the Davidic covenant was? That God made with David, a man after his own heart? He said, after you is going to come a king that I'm going to set up on an eternal throne. And he's going to be a king unlike any other king that you've ever seen in all the world. He's going to rule with an iron scepter. He's going to be the man. Nobody's going to be able to stand up to this guy. He's going to be the greatest king of all time. Then there's all these different prophecies about this king that's going to come. This Messiah, right? This Prince of Peace that's going to come, and he's going to rescue the, the sick and the weary. Um, that's what this is talking about. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Uh, skip down to verse 10. This is all good. But verse 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. And it just goes on talking about this king. And I really like this. But skip down now to 53. I'm trying to go quickly here. So I don't pull a Mackie shed on you. Please tell him that I said that. Uh, you guys are all familiar. Who is unfamiliar with Isaiah 53? Is everybody familiar with Isaiah 53? Okay. I'm not going to read the whole thing because uh, I think this is something that you guys can read on your own if you're unfamiliar. But this is a passage of scripture that is so explicitly about Jesus that for years secular scholars said this was not in the original Bible. This was not there. This is one of those additions that could not be possibly there. And they said that about several, several passages, but this was one of the main ones that got criticized. You want to know what, though? They had evidence to support that claim because the oldest copy of the Old Testament we have for a long time was from the 8th century. And so who's to say that somebody didn't come along in the years after Jesus, if Jesus was in the 1st century, and then the oldest copy of this we have is the 8th century, there's a 700-year gap there where some Christian could have come along, well-meaning, to be a faith builder, although a liar, and add this to Scripture. There's other passages that they would point to and say that could have happened with. But then back in 1940, there was a young shepherd boy tending his sheep, and one of them ran away, and he goes out on the hillside of Palestine, and he finds a cave, and he thinks his sheep might be in there, so he picks up a rock, he didn't want to go in there, it was dark and scary, but he throws a rock in there, and heard pottery break. How many of you guys have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, that pottery that broke was housing a scroll, and he went in there and found what was about 20,000 scrolls 
packed into this cave full of Jewish writings, not only scripture, but also other stuff too that we found, uh, but just chock full of all these preserved documents. And that was the greatest find, the greatest find of documentation ever. By the way, we found a bunch of other stuff too. It's still being sifted through. The Dead Sea Scrolls are being sifted through. There are also other documents, about 150,000 different manuscripts that scholars are sifting through because they've been found over the years and over the years by treasure hunters who just kind of threw them away to the side. Um, and we just found a bunch of them in a library in England. Uh, and so there's actually some guys working on that. But the Dead Sea Scrolls are very special because we found nearly a full reproduction of the Old Testament in different scrolls throughout the Dead Sea scrolls, and guess what was in there? Oh, the, the great scroll of Isaiah. I don't have my iPad with me, but if I show you my iPad, the cover photos, the great scroll of Isaiah. It's on display in museums. You want to know what's in the great scroll of Isaiah? Isaiah 53. <laughs> guess how old it is? That scroll, that full scroll, 200 BC. When was Jesus born? You know the calendar? <laughs> A couple hundred years later, right? A couple hundred years later. Actually, it was about 4 BC. We got the calendar wrong. But, so he was crucified around 26 AD in reality. But it's close enough, right? Long time. That prophecy was spoken around the 500s BC. And I wouldn't be surprised guys, if we find other stuff too. I got one more thing I want to share with you. Um, and then we're going to call it a day. This is kind of a longer reading, but Daniel 2. Uh, Since we're doing a workshop on Babylon, this is actually one of my favorites. And this is uh, this is when Daniel is really going to have his faith test. And I'm just going to read through this, though, and then we'll talk about it, okay? It says, uh, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, excuse me, one, chapter two, verse one. Oh, I was starting in the wrong chapter, my bad. <laughs> I do work, I'll do number. Um, in the second year of his reign, this is Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and what, I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers... Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I can firmly decide that if you do not tell me what my dream is, and interpret it for what it was, I will have you cut into pieces, and your house, houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream, then interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Uh... Let the king tell the servants his dream, and we will interpret it. And the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you don't tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change, so then you tell me the dream, and I'll know, and you can interpret it for me. And the astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. Were they right? They were right. There is no one on earth. Unless God steps in, who's not on earth, and lets them. 
And so Daniel comes in. He hears about this. He's one of the wise men. And he's one of the guys that's going to get toasted. He's going to be chopped to pieces. And his house is going to be turned to piles of rubble. Not only that, they're going to kill their families too. And so he gets together with his friends. He prays to the Lord. And the Lord gives him supernatural insight into what this dream not only was, but what it meant. And so Daniel goes back. If you skip down to verse uh, 27, Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner could explain the king, to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Make a note of that. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in the bed of these. And then he's going to tell this story about what this guy dreamed. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Make a note. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we'll interpret it to the king. Your majesty... He says, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might. In your hands he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, wherever, that, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Okay, make a note of that. You are that head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw, the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixes with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. Okay. I read this as a skeptic. And it was like a light bulb went off for me because I knew a little something about history. And when he explains the meaning of that vision, the pieces started to fall together for me. Because this is a prophecy, guys, that doesn't just predict an isolated event. It 
doesn't just predict a single character in history and what they're going to be like. It actually predicts world history. And whenever he says, you are that head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, each of those medals in that statue represents a nation. It represents a culture. It represents a people. It represents, at the time, at their time, the world power. And during Nebuchadnezzar's day, guess who the world power was? He was. He was that head of gold. He was in charge on this statue. And then later on, guess who's going to come after him? A guy named Cyrus, who was representative of a nation known as Persia. Have you guys ever heard of Persian silver? Which, by the way, I didn't mention, in Babylon, that was, at the time, the most gold-rich country in the world. That's why it was represented by gold. You want to know where they got all their gold? They got it from plundering all the countries around them. In particular, they plundered Israel and took down Solomon's temple. They destroyed it in 586 BC. What was Solomon's temple made out of? They took all that gold from Solomon. They took all those gold shields and all those gold trinkets from the temple and they took it back to Babylon. That's why to this day, in modern day Iraq, which used to be Babylon, you will still find caches of old ancient gold. You ever seen the movie Three Kings with George Clooney? Okay, they, they run across a cave and they find Babylonian gold. Why? Because it's coming out of their freaking ears. It was everywhere. But after then, another country's going to come that wasn't known for the richness of their gold. They were known for the richness of their silver. That's Persia. You ever seen the movie 300? You ever notice whenever it shows the Persian army, there's a silver tint over the screen? Like they sort of manipulated the color and made them kind of silverish? That's because Persia is well known for the richness of their silver. And silver is kind of associated with Persia. That's the, that's the chest of, of silver, right? And then you've got the belly and thighs of bronze. Who did Persia fight in the movie 300? The Spartans, which was a city-state of what country? Actually, they were kind of themselves, but they fought on half of the Greeks, right? You ever heard of the Bronze Age? You want to know who was in charge then? You want to know who the first leader in all of history was to take over the whole world? You ever hear of Alexander the Great? Who did he lead? Greeks. You want to know what metal is associated with their country unlike any other country ever in history ever? Bronze. That's why when you go and read the headline from a few years ago when they were having the financial crisis in Greece, it said the fall of Greece, and under the headline was a big photo of a bronze statue laid over on its side to represent the fall of Greece because bronze and all those pictures of bronze bodies, you ever heard bronze bodies? That's the naked Greek statues, right? Uh, they're made out of bronze. The Colossus, one of the seven wonders of the world, was a humongous bronze statue. That's Greece. Okay? Who comes after Greece? Rome, right? They're represented by the legs of iron. Rome, do you know iron was hard to come by in the ancient world? It wasn't for Rome. And part of the reason their military machine was as strong and as powerful as it was was because of the quality of their weapons. Guys, they had more iron than any other country in history up to that point. And they were able to go and crush and kill and destroy and murder. And you want to know what scholars call the nation of Rome? Its legs were of iron, but then its feet were of what? Iron and baked clay. And so this would be a divided people and along with one another. You want to know what historians that tell you your Bible isn't true call the nation of Rome to this day? 
the divided kingdom. Google it. Rome. And then this, this, this rock that's cut out of this mountain, but not by human hands, is going to come this little rock, and it's going to hit this statue. During the time of those kings, this Roman king, it's going to hit that statue, and it's going to topple that statue, and then that statue's going to turn into dust, and that rock is going to then grow and become this huge mountain. And, and those, those, that statue that used to be so dazzling and bright is now dust that's being blown away by the wind, but then this rock is becoming this huge mountain. What's that? That's the coming of King Jesus. And if you go read the scriptures and read the biblical prophecies, guys, everything in the Bible is either pointing ahead to Jesus, it is either directly about Jesus, or it is pointing back to Jesus in his life, or it's pointing forward to his return. Everything in the scriptures is about Jesus. That's why Jesus says, why do you look at the scriptures not realizing that all of them testify about me. It's all about Jesus. But I read that prophecy of Daniel as a skeptic, guys. And I said, that could not be for real. That had to have been added. Because it's one thing, like I said earlier, to have a character or an isolated event line up with something that is prophesied in Scripture. It's another thing for world history to line up with the prophecy from Scripture. Do you want to know what the oldest document in the Dead Sea Scrolls is that we have found? Anybody want to take a guess? It is Daniel, and it is a fragment of the book of Daniel. Would you like to know what fragment of the book of Daniel we have? The whole chapter 2! <laughs> and it's the oldest thing we found. 250 BC. 250 BC. And they're still working on it, so we may find some other stuff later. But to this day, like I had some professors in California that were actually doing work with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they told me that there will probably be another 50 years of scholars working on them before we have it all worked out. But now they've got 150,000 other documents to work through. So, you know, we're looking at probably 2,000 years of scholarships. Jesus will probably be back before we have that work on. No, that for sure. But guys, here's the deal. You can trust the Bible. You can intellectually trust the Bible. If you commit yourself to learning the truth, if you commit yourself to being a truth seeker and going wherever the truth leads you, whether that's to God or away from God, God says it's going to lead you to me. And so I just want to encourage you guys to seek the truth. And if you need a resource, if you need somebody to talk to, I'm happy to talk to you. I don't have all the answers. Um, but I, I rarely get a question that I haven't at least given some thought to. Um, but use the people around you if you're doubting. Use the people around you. Use the scriptures. Ask questions and don't be afraid of your doubts. What you should be afraid of is not being a truth seeker. And so I just want to encourage you to be a truth seeker. Okay? I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get out of here. God, thank you for bringing us together this morning. I pray that uh, what we shared will be beneficial to the people here in this room. I pray that we will commit to being truth seekers, God, and that we will not be afraid of asking hard questions, understanding that there is no question we can ask of you that you can't answer. That doesn't mean you will answer it. Sometimes we 
you want us to make a leap of faith because we become something more by doing so. But God, I just pray that we will be faithful. And I thank you for being patient with us and for loving us and for not just throwing us into life without giving us evidence, like giving a kid a hand grenade to play around with. God, you tell us how to live. You tell us how to be. And ultimately, you want us all to come in a relationship with Jesus. That is what life is all about, being his and sharing him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.